Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University here in the nation's capital. I'm at home. James is in the Shenandoah. We have some terrific guests, but first we appreciate all those who have made the effort to click that subscribe button on your phone or computer. We see a bunch of new people finding us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's keep up, as George H.W. Bush used to say, the big mo. I want to welcome Senator James Lankford with us. He's the junior United States Senator from Oklahoma, a true blue conservative, also an independent thinker. He grew up rather poor, single mother. After college, which is the University of Texas, he went to seminary. He was a leader of Christian youth organizations before he was elected to Congress 10 years ago. Senator, if I were still on the Kennedy Library Profile and Courage uh, committee, I would nominate you to come on a program with two old hacks like Carville and me, but we really do appreciate oh, oh, oh. it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Hopefully it's not a profile in courage to be able to come hang out with the two of you. <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll be fun, I assure you. This is not the way I plan to start, uh, but but we this, this story uh, about the Af- Russians paying the Afghans bounties uh, to kill American uh, soldiers, it's 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 coming from the best sources, the best reporters I know in the New York Times. It's been confirmed by the, by some of the Afghans. Uh, it's a it's a dreadful story. What should be done about it? Who should be held accountable? Well, it's something we faced uh, militarily uh, multiple times. Uh, the Iranians and General Soleimani for years uh, was paying bounties to Iraqis, was providing uh, support to be able to kill American troops in Iraq. Uh, obviously, President Trump uh, delivered him a gift uh, after several years of him attacking American soldiers and paying bounties uh, on American soldiers uh, in Iraq by eliminating Soleimani a few months ago. Uh, the uh, Russians uh, have done undercutting for a while, paying the salary of Taliban folks, trying to be able to support Taliban just to be able to undercut what's happening. Uh, now there's this whole statement about that. They've gone beyond uh, just paying the salaries of Taliban folks, now actually paying them a bounty if they actually do an assault. Now, as you have read multiple places, the intelligence community has not been 100% on this, uh, whether that money was actually being funneled by arms dealers uh, in Russia, whether that money was just being funneled to the Taliban just to be able to undercut where they were paying some specific bounty to be able to kill Americans. The result is the same. Americans are in a more dangerous location in Afghanistan already than it is uh, with Russia trying to be able to undercut. Uh, so I think clear statement, clear, clear statements to get out there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But there's, you know, it, it clearly occurred. It's impossible to think that the Russian drug dealers would have done it without the Russian government uh, uh, knowing about it. That's the way Putin operates. But President Trump says he didn't know about it. How could that possibly be? It was in the February 27th Daily Intelligence Brief. Well, so I would, I would say that when you go through the intelligence briefings on that, and I've been through quite a few of those, uh, there'll be 100, 200 pages on topics all over the world. Uh, there'll be multiple different issues, and then there'll also be a, uh, a, a level of, uh, of uh, understanding. This is a low probability. We have a medium probability. We have a high probability. This is accurate. <laughs> intelligence is not always hey, we have a direct line and we've tapped into their phone and we heard them say this. Sometimes it is a guess. They're tracking the movement of dollars, saying dollars are moving here, arms are moving here. We think this is what's occurring. Uh, but so some, some of that's not as clean as it looks. And I would tell you, going through the intelligence documents on that that I have, 
uh, it's not as easy as to be able to say there's one page one day of the 100 pages that could have been read that day. And didn't you notice that one line, that one sentence that said low probability, but we think this might have been there. It's not always that clean. So you don't think that President Trump might have known about whether it's high grade or medium grade, an intelligence report that said the Russians were paying to have American soldiers killed. No, I think he could have known. I, I, again, I don't know what's in the president's daily briefing every day to be able to go through it. I think he could have known. Uh, but the question is, uh, what what is it that they knew and they were suspecting as they go through January, February, March, April, May through this year? Uh, when they're tracking the movement of money, when they're tracking the movement, is this the same as it has been? Is this something different? Uh, is there a suspicion it is this or that? Uh, the end of the day, what's, what's, what everybody's leaving out on this, all of those intelligence reports related to that, we're all getting to the leadership and the officers in Afghanistan to say, hey, there is this thread that says this. So be aware as you're going out on your combat missions already, you're already taking special care, but be aware. We think the Russians might also be doing this. Uh, so pay extra special attention. That was getting to all the folks on the ground. Uh, so there's all this debate about whether President Trump had it whether he saw it. Uh, I think some of that is a political back and forth to say President Trump doesn't care about your kids that are in the military, so you should be afraid of him as a commander in chief. But the the chain of command, what was actually happening with those documents, were getting to the right people, were getting to the right places. They were taking the measures that were needed one way or the other. Well, I'm going to turn it over to James, but, but yeah, that's right. That's important. It goes to the commanders, but it, this was also about Putin. Uh, and, 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 and if the president knew about this, shouldn't he have said he not invite Putin to join the G7, not uh, make friendly gestures to Vladimir Putin, but say, hey, you thug, uh, you know, we are going to retaliate against you for this. I mean, as you pointed out, we wiped out Solomon because he did it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought to be wiping out Putin, but we surely shouldn't be friendly to him, should we? No, we shouldn't. Putin's not our ally uh, and, and hasn't been for 20 years. Uh, as much as every American president's tried to be able to reach out and establish some kind of relationship with Putin, uh, he is still his former KGB self and is a dictator for life and is changing the Constitution uh, to be able to make sure he, he continues to be able to control uh, everything in Russia for the rest of his life. Uh, there are significant sanctions that have been placed on him in 2017, uh, uh, 2017, 2018, uh, sanctions that have been added on to Putin and all the folks uh, around him uh, backing away from the open skies. Uh, that was a really significant event that I think a lot of people didn't notice. Uh, there was an ongoing treaty that's happened with Russia for a long time uh, that just a couple of months ago, the uh, President Trump said, we're leaving the open skies treaty because it allowed Russians to be able to come to the United States, freely move the United States, fly over the United States, gather intelligence here. It also allowed Americans to do that in Russia, but we don't need that. Uh, we don't need what the Russians need access uh, to be able to gather data. Their satellites aren't as, as adept as ours. And uh, so when President Trump said Russia's a problem and we're backing away from the Open Skies Treaty, that was a really significant moment uh, to push back on the spying efforts of Russia. And that was just two months ago. So there have been actions to take to be able to push back on Putin. Yeah, there have been. I wish he sounded more like you and Putin because he has been awful buddy-buddy with Vladimir Putin. But let me turn it over to James Carville. Hey, Senator, it's a real pleasure to have you on here. And I got a, a lot of Democratic friends, and not very many of them in Oklahoma. There's a hearty bunch of old Turpentine and Cliff Hudson and Stuart <laughs> Price and George Kaiser. Those are all great folks, actually. Those are great Oklahomans that you named there. Yeah, they are. They, and they're, they're all good Democrats. And I'm really, I really love going there. I love going to Tulsa. I think it's one of the most underappreciated cities in the United States. I really do. I mean, 
cultural scene there is, is really good. It is amazing. And the most beautiful park in America is there. It's called the Gathering Place right in the middle of Tulsa. And a lot of folks are shocked when they get to that community park that's there. Uh, but it is it is a beautiful city. A great baseball stadium, too. A really good baseball stadium. So yeah, I'm going to ask myself a question. And I'm going to ask you the same question about your party. James, what happens if the Democrats lose in November? I'll tell you what's going to happen. We'll disintegrate. It'll just be, we'll become factions. The Democratic Party will disintegrate. So let's assume the Republican Party loses in November. It, it strikes me, and the reason that I wanted to have you is I, I don't think there's much difference ideologically between you and most of the people in your caucus. But I do sense there's a tonal difference. And do you think this whole tonal message that seems to come out of the Republican Party today, don't you think that that's not very advantageous, that, that we, we could learn to talk nicer to each other? Could learn to talk nicer to each other. But what's interesting is uh, some if you, if you were to read through my Twitter feed or through my Facebook page and the comments that are there by some of the folks on the left and some of the things that they write and say about me, uh, it is remarkably sad uh, to be able to see how bitter and vitriolic it can really be. So the, the tone across the country and what you hear me say a lot in Oklahoma is we really need a lot more water on the fire than we need gasoline right now. Uh, but it seems like both sides are trying to find ways to be able to drop gasoline. My staff and I are trying to find ways to say, how can we put water on this fire to say, Let, let's get back to talking to each other and less theater. Just so you know, the left hates me to burn it. The extreme left hates me is more than you. All right, just, and I get the same thing, but I, that, they're not in they're not in power. They're not in public office. Right. They're just people out there screaming. Right. Well, I have the same thing. We when when Tim Scott and I came and brought the uh, uh, police reform uh, bill, uh, the Justice Act, last week, which was an honest work that we spent several weeks trying to be able to pull together, gathering lots of ideas to be able to say, how can we really make real uh, progress in police reform? Uh, that was greeted by one of my Senate colleagues on the left coming to the floor and saying it was just whistling out to our bigoted base uh, was uh, was his whole impression of it. Uh, and I thought, okay, okay th this is exceptionally sad uh, that you're trying to be able to brush aside and say every one of those Republicans are racist. So well, why, why would they possibly want to do anything on police reform? Uh, that kind of rhetoric just doesn't help us. I, I don't think they're racist. Were you surprised by the vote last night in Oklahoma? No, I, the only thing I was surprised by there was a, a, what we had state question 802, which uh, did the expansion of Medicaid uh, it passed by less than 1% uh, in the state. That's passed overwhelmingly in every other state, but it, it passed by less than 1% of the state. You know, if you win a football game 28 to 27, you still win the game. I mean, I, I, now, we, now we, we'd say, well, it, didn't, it only got 50.5. You live in a democracy. Yeah, I, I know, but, but when you're Oklahoma and they're the home of the University of Oklahoma, they're used to winning by 30 or 40 every time they play. I, I don't yeah. think they did that well against LSU in December, but I might have <laughs> Oh, uh oh, here we go. Parochial politics. Yeah, but Senator, pick up on James's question because that was, it, it still was the 37th state to expand Medicaid uh, at the same time that the Trump administration is saying, let's throw out the entire Affordable Health Care Act. Yeah, they are. They're, they're walking through that process legally and trying to be able to challenge it, coming from the Texas challenge, actually, and uh, trying to say there's a better way to do this. And if we have an opportunity to sit down both parties and to be able to resolve this, especially in a divided government, both parties could sit down and be able to solve some of the things. There's still quite a few areas on prescription drug expansion, everything else 
and trying to be able to solve some of those cost areas where we think there's wide bipartisan support and we should be able to move on. Uh, but it's still the hope to be able to get some of those things done. But yeah, the state the state did expand uh, Medicaid, and uh, that was a major vote. Obviously, it's something that a lot of our hospitals have put a lot of money into being able to promote. Uh, to say they want to do that's two hundred thousand people in the state will have access uh, to that Medicaid expansion, and uh, we'll see where that goes. So your background is very theological. You went to a really good seminary. I read about, and you've been involved in a church pretty actively probably all your life. Am I correct? Yes, sir. I have actually, and still am. And religious liberty is something that is an issue that you've been very active on. Yes, sir. Did, did the Bolton, if it was true, what he said about Trump and the Uyghur Muslims in Western China? I've heard a lot of religious people kind of say, wait a minute, I don't think that's a very good idea. Did, did that cause you concern? It does cause me concern, only that I'm trying to figure out what actually was said there and what was actually done, because when I've interacted with Mike Pompeo, that's not what I'm getting. I'm not getting that as an official position from the administration. I'm certainly not getting that on the trade issues and back and forth with our trade representatives. Uh, the, the folks uh, that were in the room, uh, as to use a Bolton term on there, Bolton says that's what was said. And it seems like no one else was saying that's what was said. End of the day, I'm looking at the policies. We have got to stand up for religious liberty and the Muslim Uyghurs in China included, uh, they cannot be isolated. The actions that were taken today, uh, even to be able to identify uh, what products are coming into the United States from China that are used by forced labor. Uh, many of those areas that are used by forced labor are being used by labor camps by the Uyghurs. And so some of the actions that the administration took today uh, to be able to confiscate those products and to say to the Chinese, we're no longer gonna accept your products that are done with child forced labor, uh, uh, done by the Uyghurs, uh, then that's a good step. So the actions are good on that. Uh, any statement, though, that says to anyone that human rights, any human right, uh, including uh, religious liberty, uh, we should push back on. Now, you're a longhorn, right? Yes, sir. So where do you sit in the Red River shootout? <laughs> I sit at home uh, with my blinds closed in, in the comfort of my own home. <laughs> what about the bedlam boat no i no i i i am i'm strongly in the oklahoma state side my daughter is a student at oklahoma state my money uh is definitely going to osu and so i'm definitely cheering osu as well good i thought i i, I james i thought maybe at the at the at the ou texas game he could be like the president of the united states sit on one side for the first half and the other for the second half yeah the army navy game he does the same thing with the commander-in-chief switches sides yes Yes, 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 exactly. Senator, let me let me switch the subject for a second, then we'll come back to James. Uh, you have been very supportive of voting uh, reform. Uh, we have a pandemic. Voting is going to be harder uh, potentially than ever uh, this November. Uh, you're going to have a relief package, another relief package coming up sometime this month. Are you going to support, I guess it's up to $2 billion to give to the states to try to help with mail voting and other problems that have been encountered in Wisconsin, Georgia, and Kentucky. And also, I think the post office needs about $25 billion. That will affect mail voting. Are you going to support that? Yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, the, the post office asked for $25 billion immediately at the beginning of the uh, coronavirus epidemic, uh, going all the way back to February and March. Uh, when it first started launching out there. And then uh, they said, we're desperate, we're going to need that, we're not going to survive. But what's actually occurred is people are at home, so they're ordering more products and they're getting a lot more packages. Packages are one of the best income pieces for the post office. So the post office loss has not been close uh, to what they estimated at the very beginning. Now, there are other issues 
with the post office, we got to resolve. Uh, but the 25 billion number that they threw out in March it proved not actually to be true as a good estimate of what the real needs were on it long term. But you agree they need you agree they need money to 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 have a, a feasible mail vote uh, this uh, October. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to need support ongoing. Now, I don't know if it's going to have to be this calendar year when they're going to need additional dollars. We're still trying to be able to track what the need is. But the post office is not going to shut down and the Congress is not going to allow the post office to be able to shut down. That's a basic function of government. Uh, you've got to be able to maintain the ongoing arguments really been on how to be able to handle their uh, prepayments to their pension plans. That's been the biggest challenge for the longest time I had to be able to accomplish all that. Uh, but that's a whole different technical issue. When you get into the voting side of it, absolutely. Uh, we've got to be able to do this. This is something Amy Klobuchar and I have worked on a long time on how do you actually resolve some of the different issues on voting. And we think there are some pretty practical ways to be able to do it. Here's the, here's the funny part, though. If you go back 15 years ago, uh, and 20 years ago, even uh, when dollars were given out uh, after the famous 2001 uh, hanging chads whole debacle, uh, you go back to all that time. There was uh, the HAVA funds, what they were called at that point, uh, to be able to get money to the states to be able to help them in their voting. Many of the states have never used all of those funds. Uh, the second round of funds that were given, uh, many states have not used all of those. Uh, we have several states that still have 80% of the money. They've actually said thank you very much from the government. Uh, from the federal government, they've deposited in their state accounts. They've just gained interest on it, but they've never actually spent it for any election uh, responsibilities. We had the same thing two years ago when we allocated about $250 million uh, to the states. And then we did another round of money in the CARES Act that went to the states uh, for uh, election. Uh, most of those funds have not even been tapped yet. So there's quite a bit of money uh, that is out there that's literally sitting in accounts. And uh, some states will say, we want you to continue to send us more. But the vast majority of the states haven't even tapped in close uh, to what they've already been allocated already. So does that mean you won't support two, $2 billion more in this next bill? Uh, so far, I'd like to see them spend what they already have, uh, rather than to say they want more and more and more at this point. Because again, if states just say, give us more money that we're going to deposit into an account and gain interest on it, and we will someday use it for election security, that's totally different. Now, if they're going to actually use it and it's going to be functional for that, that's a different issue and if they need it. But remember, elections are a uniquely state responsibility. Every state has the responsibility to be able to uh, use, uh, maintain their own elections uh, and to be able to manage their elections. Uh, the federal government steps in and says, we want to make sure they, they're fair and uh, we want to make sure they're regarding voting rights and such. Uh, but the state has the responsibility to be able to uh, do elections, just like they have the responsibility to mow the grass at the governor's mansion. Stand up word that describes the states right now. Broke. I mean, it's just the, the revenue coming in, expenditure. Louisiana, Oklahoma, I mean, we're, to, we're having to pay in the virus and we'll be lacking in revenue coming in. And I mean, this is where, in my opinion, it's where we need a federal government to give these states the support they need. We had, you had an election in Oklahoma last night, from what I read about it. Turnout was actually pretty high. There was nobody, no voting irregularities that were reported. I, I watched the election returns come in, and you had an election. It was a close election. One side won, another one lost, but it seemed to have been fairly, fairly conducted, as best I can tell. So he, he, here's the challenge that I have with that, James, is that uh, I, I absolutely agree. Elect, uh, we've had an election in Oklahoma, and uh, we've gone through that process. We, we spent the money to be able to do it. Uh, and what, I, what I'm frustrated with is you'll have, let's say, 46 states that will run their election, and then you'll have three, four or so uh, states that will come back and say, we can't run our election. We desperately need federal help. Uh, New, New Jersey is notorious for saying, 
uh, we don't have any money when right next to them, New York's figuring it out uh, and they're doing it. New Jersey can't seem to be able to solve it. Some of those things are state issues to say they've got to be able to resolve it. And I always get frustrated when 30 or 40 states can figure out how to do it and 10 of them come back and say, no, there's no way we can possibly do it unless the 30 or 40 states that have figured it out pay us to do ours. Uh, so there, there, is, there is a good balance there. It seems like the state of Georgia has a particularly difficult time conducting a fair election. And my point is, somebody's going to say, you know, if we can drink Pepsi and fly American Airlines. I mean, I, the business community in Georgia has got to walk into that Secretary of State and say, look, the right to vote is fundamental to everything. And this idea of putting two voting machines for every 5,000 people in floating in the cab and 50 voting machines for every 500 people in Northwest Georgia, I think violates the 14th and 15th Amendment. I mean, you got to have a fair election. They've got to have a fair election. They've got to have access to it. Again, and everybody talks about this during COVID time period. You go back to April at the height of the COVID outbreak in South Korea. They had an election in South Korea, an in-person election in South Korea, and had the, the highest uh, turnout that they've had in 20 some odd years. So it can be done. Uh, our state did it. People wearing masks, people putting up plexiglass, doing special protection for all those older volunteers that help us in our polling places. There are ways to do it. You just got to pay attention to it and have good leadership to think ahead. Am I correct that you do support wearing a mask? I think I saw you say that. I do. In fact, I was I, at, the, at the Trump rally in uh, Tulsa when he was there. I was there and I was wearing a mask there as well. Just to wrap up the, the voting thing, do you agree that mail fraud uh, voting is really uh, infinitesimal, rare, not a big problem? So, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to struggle with one issue on the absentee on the mail fraud. And that is I do get frustrated with the potential of what's happening in California with ballot harvesting. Uh, if you have the potential that someone can come by your door and say you want to vote absentee, we'll sign you up right now. Then they'll come back a week later and say, have you got your ballot? We'll help you fill it out right now and we'll go turn it in. There's a lot of opportunities for fraud there. And you can say, well, gosh, we don't have any proof of it. There's just a lot of opportunities for fraud in situations like that. And a lot of people got furious uh, about a, a, a primary election in North Carolina when ballot harvesting happened, because ballot harvesting is not legal in North Carolina. And a consultant was doing it there, but it's legal in California to do it right now. So the absentee ballot, unless you've got some way to verify, that's my vote and I turned it in and that's me, which is what we do in Oklahoma. You've got to turn in, uh, it's got to be notarized, or right now you've got to turn it in with a, a copy of your driver's license or a copy of some bill, something that has your name on it uh, to be able to verify this is really me turning this in. Uh, you've got plenty of opportunity for fraud and it's hard to be able to track and prove it. Of course, they caught that person in North Carolina and most other cases of fraud they've, they've caught. There've been very few. But, but, but the situation in North Carolina and that what they were doing in North Carolina is legal in California right now. And that's what I'm concerned about. In that state law, you can do ballot harvesting in California, and everyone said, yep, that's just fine. Uh, but that, that, is, that is an issue because it does open you up for a lot of opportunities for fraud. Well, it, it should bring the, they should bring the California Secretary of State and hold them to have a hearing and ask her or him, whoever it is. But, I mean, yep. it's, a, you know, it's a sovereign state. I mean, Correct, and they make their own voting rules just like every other, every other state but, does. But, again, yeah. if they're looking for money, you should call them in and say, what do you do? What is the provision in California law? As I understand it, you can ballot harvest. And I think that would be, no one would complain about that. And let, let that person, whoever she or he might be, explain why elections in California are basically fair. That's fine. Right. I don't have any, but 
let's don't deprive, you know, to the extent we can, given the unique situations we're in, to the, to the extent we can, uh, everything I've seen from you, you agree with this principle, is as many people as want to vote should be able to vote and have their vote counted accurately and fairly. 100% I absolutely agree. In, in Oklahoma, uh, we've had for a long time just no, no excuse absentee. If you want to do mail-in, they'll mail you a ballot. You can, you can send it back. No excuses on that in-person absentee uh, in advance of the election. We want to have as many people vote uh, as possibly want to vote. And uh, that, that gives them the opportunity to be able to do it in multiple different hooks in the water to be able to go get it done. Senator, you have been great. Let me ask you one final question. I not only know that you're not a racist, I think your whole public life has been one of inclusiveness. Uh, your colleagues, it's just, it's quite clear. It's a, you know, and there's a number of your colleagues, Tim Scott, for sure, but there are lots of other Republicans who certainly are not racist. But when you say we're the party of Lincoln with Donald Trump and Charlottesville and what he's done after the George Floyd incident and the Kung flu and just one case after another, as long as Donald Trump is your leader, isn't it hard to say that you're the party of Lincoln? Uh, it's not hard for me to say that because I come back to the basic principle that uh, Lincoln was all about. And it's opportunity and access for everybody and everybody to be treated the same. It's a, it's a biblical principle for me going all the way back to Deuteronomy 25 of equal weights and measures. Everybody has to be treated the same, equally rich, poor, no matter what race you are, no matter what background you are, even if you're from Louisiana. You should be treated fair, uh, and so they. We, but that, well, we didn't treat the students fair, but that's okay. <laughs> so I mean, that, that should be just that should be just a basic principle, uh, and it's certainly an American right, and it's something I, I am proud to be in a party that was, uh, you know, that the overwhelming votes in, in the 1960s for civil rights were Republican votes in the House and the Senate with the Democrat president. Uh, that was entirely right to be able to push that and to be able to do that. It's entirely right for Lincoln uh, to be able to do what it is. And I think we've got to be able to continue to engage on this basic principle. That's why even the police reform thing became so frustrating to be able to go through the Justice Act because there are very legitimate reforms there. And for people to just brush it aside and say, you know, those are Republicans, they're all racist, so we're not gonna listen to anything they're gonna say, uh, ignores uh, both the reality of what that bill really was and how strong that reform uh, really is that's proposed. And it denies the American people an opportunity to be able to go through and solve a problem. My fear is it's gonna be used as a political piece during a campaign rather than actually solving a problem when we had a moment to solve an issue that everyone sees as a problem. Well, I agree that is unfair, but don't you also think that it's unfair some of the many of the racist things that Donald Trump has said? I, I don't I don't think he's I don't think he's a racist. And I think we I, he and I've had some conversations about some of his words. I don't like some of the words that he uses. I don't think his heart and his intent is to be there. I just don't think he's careful in his speech. And I think he should be. He's the president of the United States and you should be more careful in the words you say because you're the president every single American from every single background. Uh, and that's exceptionally important. I represent all 4 million Oklahomans, every background, every economic, every race. I represent everybody. Uh, we don't agree on every single issue and that's fine, but I should respect every single person and their opinions and let them be heard. And I, and the president's just not good at doing that. That's just not his thing. Yeah. James, you have a final thought? So uh, I'll tell you my favorite on the way out here, my favorite Lincoln story. Is, he was giving a speech and a woman stand up and said, accused him of being two-faced. And he said, lady, let me ask you something. You think if I had another face, I wouldn't use it? <laughs> 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 so anytime, just keep that one in your back pocket. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. I, I, I can store that with all the Will Rogers jokes that I've got stored in my back pocket already being from Oklahoma. Uh, what do you have the best line about the Democratic Party ever? 
Yeah, yeah. Will, Will Rogers still had the greatest, greatest statement ever when he said, I, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. So the great Woody Guthrie, the national anthem of the left wing is this land. Mm. Right. Came out of Oklahoma. That's kind exactly of, right. Kind of strange. There are a lot of good things that come out of Oklahoma and of Texas. Senator, you have been so interesting, so many interesting things. I, I'm not sure the lead, though, might not be that in the OU Texas game, uh, James Langford stays at home with the blinds closed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to thank you, and I want to thank your your press secretary, particularly for being so good. You've been a delightful guest, and I hope sometime you'll come back. Uh, I look forward to the conversation. Thanks for letting me join in. Let's bring Matt By into this. Matt is one of the most perceptive political writers in America, now a contributing editor for the Washington Post. He was chief political correspondent for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, a national political correspondent for Yahoo News, a screenwriter, James, and an author of a great book, When Politics Went Tabloid. Most important of all, he is married to the great Ellen Uchimia. So I want to say uh, it's terrific to have the second best member of the family, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Actually, before I came in here, Ellen said, tell, tell Al, I said, hey, so you gave me an opportunity. She says, hello. She's busy working away as always. James, this is Inside Baseball. Ellen and I worked together. She ran Bloomberg Television. She's just one terrific. That, that, this is what our show is about Inside Baseball. <laughs> That's right. It is. If you're not an inside, visit this show all inside as any race. Be as inside as you want. Well, speaking of inside, Matt, you wrote an important column that James and I really were struck by that said, uh, about a, 10 days ago, how Democrats misread how Trump won in 2016, and the 2020 is not 2016. Explain. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I'm thrilled you read it. And, you know, it's an honor for me to be on with you guys. And nice of you to say all that stuff. I've, I've admired you both forever, of course. So it's uh, it's anytime I can help, I'm happy to. Since you were a little boy. <laughs> yeah, since I was uh, eight. No, but 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 uh, no, there was definitely a time when I was thrilled if either of you would return my call. So I'm thrilled to be here. Um, you know, look, I just, I, I you know, I rem- uh, let's start it this way, right? I remember being on, I was on the set at Yahoo on election night 2016. You guys were probably on sets of your own. And, and uh, you know, I was with Katie Couric and we're, we were getting the exit poll data. And the data struck me. I mean, it told a story of what was happening in that election. And I feel like very soon after that story was just buried and distorted. Uh, And we've heard for years now this idea about Trump and the movement he created and how he came out of nowhere and what a powerful force he is in American politics. And um, I just never, I mean, that, that, the data from 2016 was clear then, and it's clear now, and nothing has changed it. And what it tells you is uh, Hillary Clinton was an extraordinarily unpopular candidate outside of core Democrats, that a large number of people, even though majorities thought she was qualified to be president and had the temperament to be president, uh, and majorities felt the opposite about Donald Trump, his margin of victory came from a slice of the electorate. I don't know. It's hard to quantify it. It might be 10, 12 percent uh, of the electorate who were uh, independents and, and moderate conservatives who decided they'd rather take a flyer on a guy who they didn't like and didn't think would be a good president and didn't think would win the presidency uh, than vote for Hillary Clinton. And at the end of the day, that was his margin of victory in a lot of these states. It, there was never any groundswell 
for Trumpism. If you looked in, as I did in the column, I talked about two states in particular, Florida and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a great example of a strong majority of voters in Pennsylvania. I think it was 60%, 60-odd percent thought Donald Trump did not have the temperament to be president, which is an astounding thing to say. He won the state by a single percentage point. 21, a fully a fifth of the voters, if you believe the exit polling, and I do, because it's very consistent, fully a fifth of the voters who said that about Donald Trump voted for him anyway. Now we can take guesses about, did they think he was gonna lose? Did they think maybe he'd be a different guy when he got into office? I think there are, I think it depends on the voter. I don't think it's monolithic. But it, what it tells you is that, is that his, that was his high water mark in American politics. And it was almost, was almost certainly more than anything, a reflection on his opponent. After that, he lost independence almost immediately. His, his approval ratings have never gotten out of the low 40s. He got destroyed in the midterm elections. Um, and, and so every indication we have is that he, he should not have won in 2016. And I don't think it's, a, it's, 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 it's accurate to, to look at this election and say, well, but look at last time he came out of nowhere. His support was so understated. I don't believe it was. Let me just give you one thing that I think uh, attests to that. Gallup found last time there were 14% of the voters who didn't like Trump and Clinton. They thought both were bad. And of those, 69% voted for Trump. When you think about it, that's logical. Hey, I think they're both bad. What the hell? Let's go with a new guy. At least it'll be different. Uh, they're what Shirley, uh, Sherry Bustis has called the Trump triers. There was, a, there was one survey, I forget where it was, that had a, a, a I don't know, 10, 12 13% who said they didn't like Biden or Trump now, and they go overwhelmingly for Biden, which also is logical. I'm not really crazy about either one, but what the hell, I can't take four more years of this guy. I, I, I think that really just just uh, uh, confirms the point you're making about how different this election is. Well, and also it's it's a little, you're right, it's, it's, it's the devil you know and the devil you don't know in some, in an election like that, right? And and I think, you know, look, I'll put myself in this category. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what you guys thought, but I certainly, you know, I'd followed Trump for a long time. I'd met him in the 90s when he was first looking at an independent run for the presidency. I did not rule out the the possibility that he would uh, change, you know, that, that he would actually come into office and try to take it seriously and try to be more bipartisan. I mean, Trump's a guy who, who, uh, who can change very quickly depending on the audience. And he'd been a very different kind of political figure in the 90s than he ran as in 2016. So I certainly, I didn't think it was likely, but I think a lot of voters probably felt like me that you know, we don't know what we're going to get with this guy. And they felt that they knew what they were getting from Hillary Clinton. And, you know, what what they got almost immediately, I think, confirmed their worst fears about this president. And that's why his approval ratings are where they are. I mean, I was, I was I'll just say as an aside, I was stunned, not stunned. I've heard it so often now, but to listen to Senator Lankford, who, as you guys said, is so articulate, talking about President Trump and saying, look, I don't think he's a racist. I, I, I mean, look, I. I don't throw that word around very easily. I, I, I think there's, you know, I, I think it's way too easy to brand people racists and dismiss what they're saying. But if Donald Trump as president is not a racist, then are we defining a racist in America as only somebody who wears a hood, as only somebody who uses racial epithets? I mean, his, his the entire stance of his administration right now is 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 effectively based on racial division. He's about to veto the United States defense budget because he wants to launch a defense of the Confederacy. I mean, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how Senator Lankford defines it, uh, but I think I know how most Americans define it, and I think that's why his approval rating isn't going anywhere but down.
I, I'll give Senator Langford a pass. All right. I, I, what else could he say? <laughs> All right. So, Matt, let me try something on you. So there's this narrative is that Trump was kind of cruising along, had a almost 30,000 dollars, 3.4% unemployment, was in kind of good position to be reelected. Then COVID-19 came in and exposed his weaknesses, and now he doesn't have any chance to be reelected. All right? That's bullshit. He was going to lose in January. Once the Bernie Sanders threat was removed from the Democratic Party, he was doomed. You can go back and you can look at the data. And, and these narratives become, you just hear them, and it was just like the same thing about, oh, he was a brilliant politician. He, he came from nowhere. The polling was all off. No one can poll anymore. Bullshit, the polling averages were a little too much for Hill. It probably broke his way 1% and against her 1% and a few states. But, but this is not, he was not going to win in January. And no one goes back and looks at that. You can go look at 538, real clear politics. He was actually stronger at one point during the beginning of the pandemic. But people didn't want to return him. Look at the 2018 election. Everybody forgets about it. No, and it wasn't typical off the election. The turnout was extraordinarily high. I mean, they've been rejecting this guy since the night he got in office. That's my opinion anyway. If you have a different view, let me know. No, I, I do think it was always going to be a very uphill fight for him to get reelected. I mean, certainly if you had a strong economy and, and peace and things are going well in the country and people are confident, you'd have a you'd have a better shot. Uh, so I don't, I don't think he was I, I wouldn't say he had no he didn't have a chance to be reelected. But I, I thought it was always going to be much more difficult for him. I think American voters this is my own theory about it. And this is, is you know, based purely on observation. Been watching it, you know, a long time as you guys have. I think American voters really don't like chaos and unpredictability. I think there's a real fatigue to that. I've been surprised at how resilient even his low approval ratings have been over time because of that. And I think it's hard to get reelected when people feel like they wake up in the morning and they don't know what they're going to see. I, I, I think the electorate tends to shy away from that. So I always thought he was going to have a pretty tough time. And I don't think he really gets a ton of credit for the economy and all of that because he's so – the nature of his presidency is such an outsider presidency. It's pretty hard to claim – credit on, on a policy level. I will say though, James, and I said this in the column, you know, I, I don't, I won't sit here today and say he can't win. I mean, first of all, uh, because I've seen too many elections and, you know, as you have and things, some bunch of things are going to happen. We don't see coming between now and November. Uh, I don't think he can win, but also, you know, Democrats have something to do with this. And the one thing Trump really wants, and it's why he's doing all this stuff right now, is he wants a culture war. The one way he wins is if this election becomes about white America versus everybody else. He's standing between white America and a mob. That that can actually um, resonate for him. And to the extent that the Democratic Party, you know, wants to make this an indictment of of rural America and white America, as, as, as you know, James, better than anybody from having run the Clinton campaigns, you know, that, that, that is a formula for a much closer election than this ought to be. And, that, and I think Biden is too smart to get dragged into that. I think his answers on that have been really good, but it, it still exists. Yeah. 
and, and you're right, this metropolitan triumphalism or, or, or this urban cultural, there's a guy that writes editorials for the New York Times, all right? His name is Benjamin Applebaum. Yeah, I know, Ben. Yeah, I used to sit next to him. Right. So LSU played Clemson in the national championship game in New Orleans. So the president of LSU is a Monday night game, says we're going to call off classes Tuesday. My, my daughter was a senior at LSU at the time. This was before the pandemic. And everybody said, well, that makes a lot of sense. We don't want these kids driving back drunk. So he says, he put, puts out a tweet and says, does LSU get free college under the Sanders thing? Or, or does it just go to real schools? And hmm. people see that. And they go, what kind of dickweed is this? <laughs> and that, and I understand, that's so much permeates kind of coastal thought and it makes it hard for a john bell edwards or or, or anybody else a doug jones or, or, or john oseron or, or a, a, a jamie harrison what is it about these people that they think this they're being intelligent when they do this kind of crap it, you're one of them explain it to me <laughs> I'm one of them. I don't think I like that. Well, I will say, no, no, yeah. I will say, James, I mean, you gave Senator Langford a pass a moment ago. I'm going to give Binya a pass because I know him and he's a really bright guy. I, I will say, you know, the, and, and a good guy. I, I will say the, the, I think the social, this has always been, as you know, better than I do. This has always been a part of the American left. There has always been a, a cultural, an educational elitism. People can, people can say that's a, you know, that's just a caricature if they want, but it's it's not. And I've written about it at length. I think, you know, the social media has created a dynamic in particular in Twitter. I don't think actually tons of people see that tweet because tons of people are not. This is mostly an echo chamber for liberal journalists. But if you spend enough time on Twitter, and I try not to, or, or other social media, you begin to think that that is the universe. You begin to think that you're operating in a much larger universe of thought than you actually are. It's a hall of mirrors. And when you operate in that hall of mirrors, you start to think you understand America in a way you do not. It's the same way. I know you guys have had this experience. I've had it many times. Somebody who's, who's you know lives in New York City or LA will say to you, I don't think the Republican can win. I mean, I don't know anybody who's going to vote for it. Well, of course you don't, right? You live in New York City. If you spend your time in social media, you live in a, in a community where everybody feels the same way you do, probably. That's how your feed is generally structured now. And so... You know, I do think there is a misunderstanding about this. There is a feeling that people who voted for Trump are all closet Confederates, right wingers, hopeless causes, and uh, and 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 basically, you know, can't be reclaimed. And it's just not true. There are an awful lot of people out there who voted for Donald Trump who find him really distasteful, who would like a choice, who will consider another option. They are persuadable voters, and that's not a fashionable thing to talk about now because liberals. Liberals don't want to talk about persuadable voters because then you got to run a campaign that's all accommodationist and you got to watch what you say and you can't go out there and feel superior to everybody. But the truth is that is how this election is going to be decided. It's not a turnout election. I don't believe that. I've never believed that. The turnout that Hillary Clinton got among African-American voters, if you compare it to anyone other than Barack Obama, who I think was a singular candidate, was pretty darn good. And that's not where you're going to find your votes. You're going to find your votes on people who voted for Trump. And, um, and, I, and I think you run the risk of losing them. I, I wish you would report on this more. I'm involved with a project where we spend $75 million in 77 rural counties. 
in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And the most dangerous thing that people say, and I see this shit all the time, there are no swing voters out there. It's all a turnout election. Oh, please. It's a very comforting thing to think, right? And they just want you. And I, I would use, I don't, I'm a liberal. What I'm not is I'm not an urbanist. I, I, look, I'm, of course, I love cities. I love to go to New York, I love Chicago, I love San Francisco. But the urbanist mentality that is so permeated a certain part of the party is utterly destructive to what's going on out there. And I don't know, and it, there's just this, this smugness, and it really pisses people off. And you don't have to do that. Bill Clinton never did that. Bill Clinton was smarter than you were. You knew it. At some <laughs> level, he knew it. He just never told you that. And that's called political skill. Well, I do think there's a comforting aspect to the turnout theory, right? Because if you believe that every election is about turnout, then you never have to be wrong or you never have to compromise or you never have to think about the way other people live. It's just more, it's just louder, more and louder, more and louder all the time. But it's a, it's a flawed theory. And it's, it's always, of course, you know, a mixture is, you know, you know better than I do. It's always both turnout and persuasion. It's not just flawed, Matt. It's dangerous. I think it is. Yeah. Well, I, I, I also, I want to, I want to comfort you, Matt, and, and assuage your worries because you're absolutely right. I agree totally. But all of the empirical evidence, namely elections, indicates that the voters think that way too. The latest being Colorado. Yeah. Uh, uh, this week, I mean, Colorado had a choice between a Bernie Sanders left winger, a single payer versus uh, the, the for lack of a better term, the moderate former governor, John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper ran a terrible campaign and he still got 60%. The urbanists win in heavily democratic urban areas. They don't win in, in the mm -hmm. sorts of places that decide elections. They win in New York City. Uh, they win in places like that. Uh, but I think, and I think the, the, certainly the primaries of 2020 prove that. The off-year elections prove that. And whatever the effort of, of Republicans to paint Democrats in, in a culture war, you know, Joe Biden just, he, he has weaknesses as a candidate. But one of them is not that he comes across as an elitist. Joe Biden and elitist uh, are, uh, are, are, are not two uh, terms you'd use in the same sentence. I totally agree. And that is his strength. And, and you know, certainly the off-year elections, the 2018 elections were emphatic on this point. I mean, the Demo that is the model for winning big in 2020. Every Democrat who won, I think literally every Democrat who won in 2018, basically picked up, uh, you know, suburban votes with sort of common sense policies. All of the sort of left-wing insurgents uh, lost, uh, lost primaries and lost generals. So it's, it's, it is, you know, um, it's the way you're going to win it. And, and look, you, you might win this election as a Democrat either way, frankly. I mean, it's, it's, it's teed up. If you lose it, you only can blame yourself. But, as, but you know, to what James said earlier, how big is that win, right? How, what are you going to carry with you? I think a smart campaign, you know, trying to talk to people who may not have voted Democratic last time, you, you, could, end up, you could end up controlling everything uh, after, after this election because I think there is a, is a deep and profound unrest out there with with how this experiment 
has gone. I mean, that, that is what it was for a lot of voters. It was an experiment and it's gone poorly. It doesn't mean they want to go back to the status quo. It doesn't mean they think politics was great the way it was. Uh, but I think there, but I think there are a lot of voters is my guess on this are willing to uh, return to normalcy for a little while and then take a breath and figure out where we go next. I think, you know, I've described Joe Biden as the house flipper candidate to me, you know, it's like, he's, He's 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 not he's he's not the guy who has the biggest plan, or the most exciting. He's the guy he's going to come into the neighborhood. There's a there's a bunch of squatters in a house in the neighborhood that are bringing down all the values and making everybody feel uncomfortable and unsafe. And he's going to come by that house. He's going to kick out the squatters. He's going to repaint, and fix it up, and then he's going to put it back on the market in four years. Right. He's here to just get things under control. Uh, and and then he's going to walk away. I had a conversation with Peter Hart who said something I thought was particularly insightful. He said, Biden doesn't need to run as the grandfather. He needs to run as the uncle. Because the grandfather is going to give you anything that you want. The uncle, your parents are good. Your parents are all stern. Your grandparents are all forgiving. Your uncle likes you when you do well and tells you something that you do wrong. And I thought that was a kind of insightful analogy you know uh, uncle joe it conjures up stalin i know that <laughs> my 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 uncle spoiled me a lot more than my father or my grandfather what that, but but the <laughs> grand, my grandparents would give, give you anything but i want to go to something you wrote in in, in by the way just from my view i think you have an important role to play as a translator between urbanist thinking in the rest of america because I think as much as anybody, you understand both. Thank you. I mean, you live in one and you report in another. It's, I was thinking about this the other day, thinking about writing about it, how interesting it is um, how a presidency like Trump's reveals something beyond ideology. It really reveals character. I think most of us who are not conservatives, and I'm, I'm not, um, if you're independent or a Democrat, I think you would have said at the outset of this administration, well, Jeff Sessions is a guy, he's, he's so, uh, he's been in the tank with Trump from the beginning and he's so ideological and he's so strident and he has this racial history and it's Alabama. And, you know, he's, this, this is a guy who's going to be terrible for the justice department, uh, for an independent justice department. And, and if you'd heard Bill Barr was going to come in after Sessions, you thought, well, there's a guy who worked for George HW Bush. There's a guy who's considered moderate and a guy who cares about the law and has his whole experiences in the prosecutorial vein. But it, it, it turns out, I think, when you look back on it, that uh, this presidency reveals the character. It tests the character of people because the choices are always bad, because the president is always asking you to do things that are inappropriate. And what we found out was that Jeff Sessions, for all his ardent, reflexive Southern conservatism, cared deeply about the institutions of government. He'd been in the Senate a long time. He believes in the institutions of government, and he was not going to go that far. He was willing to lose his job and lose his political career if necessary to protect some bedrock principle of the Justice Department, whereas Barr, who served, who, who seemed just great when he served a better president and a better person, uh, there's no bottom to the depth he's willing to go uh, as an attorney general. Uh, because he's basically a monarchist at heart. Uh, and and it, it, it turns out that he pretty much will do anything a president wants him to do. And if that president is a person of character and decency, great. And if they're not, well, then you're just, you're out of luck. And uh, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting how this presidency, because it's constantly making people make moral and ethical choices, 
reveals the essential character of who they are in public life. And I do not think history will judge Barr to have uh, to have need, had the character, the strength of character necessary for the moment. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think he's the worst attorney general uh, probably in our history. I think uh, very few Republicans have stood up to that challenge, however, and those who have uh, have tended to suffer for it. You have a few inklings now, Matt. Uh, Liz Cheney is breaking with him on a few things. I guess first, do you expect any more in the next four months? But secondly, to go to the question that James asked, uh, asked uh, Senator Lankford, if the Republicans, as we expect, lose this and lose it pretty darn decisively, what's that party going to look like uh, on November the 7th, November the 27th? It's such a fascinating question. How do I expect it? The true answer is I've expected it every week for the last four years. You know, I, I really had more faith in the Republican Party and in the people I knew who were Republicans who served in office than uh, than was warranted. Um, and they've gone so far down this road. They've been so willing to gamble the future of their party. It has shocked me, as I think it has surprised a lot of people. Uh, I guess I was naive about that. Um, I do think there'll be more, sure. The deeper Trump falls, and particularly if he loses, everybody will suddenly be someone who was always critical of Trump, right? They're all going to want to jump out of the boat. But the fact is they've all crammed in there for years. They're going to pay a price with the public. They're going to pay a price with their own conscience and they're going to pay a price with history because this is beyond ideology. This is a beyond vision for the country. We have had a man in office who I, I have written and I believe is the first truly bad person in the presidency uh, in my lifetime and maybe ever uh, who has put his own interests again and again and again above country, let alone party. He couldn't care less about the party. He's totally hijacked it. And, and they have stood by and gambled on the idea, and I do believe this is what they think, they've gambled on the idea that it can only last for so long and will all outlast him. It's crazy and it's nuts, but just nod and go along with it. He's, he's getting done what needs to get done. We're putting judges on the court. We're getting our tax cuts. And this, this will end and we'll still be sitting here and, and things will get back to normal. It was a miscalculation. And, and I think it's going to be one of the really interesting stories of the next couple of years if Trump loses, uh, which is, you know, what to what extent is the Republican Party damaged uh, beyond beyond repair? And, and how long does it take to to rebuild that brand into something beyond this sort of reactionary, anti-immigrant, divisive force in American life? Listen to that, Rob Portman and Lamar Alexander. Uh, listen to Matt Bai. Yeah. James, got time for one more question. Okay. I, I just want to be real clear here. I, I believe this. There's a better chance that he does not run than he's reelected. And I think That's the chances that, that he does not run, I don't know what they are. But whatever they are today, they're five times as much as they were in the beginning of June. Maybe it was one-tenth of one percent at the beginning of June. Maybe it's a half of one percent now. But it is gone up every day. Because he cannot take... It is a... You want to report on something, there's a state senate district in Kentucky that voted. It's a suburban Louisville, it's, it's Oldham County, it's kind of up the Ohio River, part of Jefferson's in it. Trump carried that by 12 in 2016. The Democrat carried it in the election by 16. What you're starting to see is these border state and southern suburbs, think Atlanta, Nashville, Oklahoma City, all right, 
are starting to behave like where Al grew up, the Philadelphia suburbs, the New Jersey suburbs, the Orange County suburbs. I, I mean, I, th I think that, and I know it's a special and you're going to have to turn out, but a 28-point turnaround in a district is something to take notice of. I really believe that. And, you know, in the northern Kentucky suburbs go. And in, in Ohio, Columbus suburbs, you, they're, ball, when it, when they're blowing a gasket right now. Right. They're not just turning on him. I mean, they're just like, they're crazed. But maybe for good reason. Matt Bai, you have a final word? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, James. I mean, I, it's it's interesting. Again, I've been wrong. I, I, I didn't think he'd run the, I didn't think he'd run to begin with, first of all, because I'd been through this dance in the 90s. I, I, I was willing to bet at the outset it was a 50-50 chance he was going to run for one term. He was, he was going to be done with one term and not run again because I didn't think he ever really wanted the job. I've been wrong about Trump's uh, intentions all along because I really didn't think he ever really wanted to be president. And now I think it's – first of all, it's, it's difficult to see a face-saving way for him to get out. And it's also difficult – I don't know what the procedural – opening for that is. I don't know how the Republican Party does that. I mean, I guess they'd have to do it at the convention, but I, I think it's a, I think it's unlikely. Google the bulwark James Carville. Just Google that and it'll pop right up. This is how he exits. I wrote about it. All right, I'm going to read. I want to hear this. I, I'm interested. Well, I, I also want to encourage everybody out there. Well, first of all, I want to encourage Matt By to write more. Four months, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you can just do a little bit more because we need you, Matt By. We really do. Uh, and, uh, and I can't not thank you enough for being uh, a guest today. Uh, your column is always interesting. And uh, uh, once again, you married above yourself. Uh, so uh, we appreciate that too. Say hi to Ellen and thanks a lot. I will. I appreciate you guys. It's an honor for me. Thank you. Hey, Matt. Yeah. Tell Mr. Applebaum if he comes on the show, I donate five hundred dollars to his favorite art museum. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'll tell him that. That's a good one. All right. All right. Bye bye. Take care, Matt. I'll see you guys. Thanks, James. We did we did good today, as they say. This was a really interesting show. Uh, we also have uh, a pretty interesting show coming up next week. More than pretty. You know, tell us about it. Tell us about it. So. One of the things is, in 2016, the right working class became the big story. For whatever reason, they've sort of receded from the opinion. The, the, the greatest authority on the white working class is Stan Greenberg. And I'm sorry, he's a scholar. He worked in, in the campaign poster. He did the original research in Macomb County in Michigan. He's followed this forever. There's a terrific new book out that got a Bafo reviewed in the New York Times today from Clyde Haberman by a guy named David Paul Kuhn, who's like a, I wouldn't call him one of my students, but I've had him at my class. And, and David has the story of the, the working class backlash in New York City in 1969 and how it started to deteriorate the, the end of the relationship between the Democratic Party and working class Americans. And we're going to have a full hour with these two guys and you and I. And what we want to do is, as opposed to like interviewing, just have a conversation about where, what, how did we get here? And I think that there are a lot of myths about white working class, and we'll, we'll, we'll get the definition of it. But anybody that is interested in politics 
I, I will guarantee you this is a show that I'm very excited about. Please, you know, I don't know what you do, listen in or subscribe or however the hell this thing works, but do whatever it is. And tell anybody you know that's interested in having a, a conversation about a very strategically placed demographic in the United States. You can like them or dislike them or whatever you think about them. But as for now, they're pretty strategically located. And it's an important, it's an important part of this coming election. So I am just beside myself in about this kind of story. Then you read the great Tom Metzl's column today in the Times, and you juxtapose that with the, the Clyde Haven review of David Paul's book, and you can see that we're going to have a good show. We are going to have a good show. That is a commitment. Uh, but I want to thank everybody now for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. You also can email us, politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. If you have a comment or a question, you know, please, please let us know. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, we had a terrific show this week. It's going to be great next week. We really hope you'll tune in. Uh, and please stay home, stay safe, and be well. This is Al Hunt saying goodbye for James Carville and Politics War Room. <laughs>